Welcome to FIT podcast episode 115. I'm Lawrence White, Consultant Senior Advisor on Digital Finance to the Institute of International Finance, based in Melbourne, Australia. In this episode, we're going to come back to the topic of digital identity and digital trust we covered previously in episodes 73 and 87 of FRT. The occasion is the release on the 15th of February this year in final form of the Principles for Digital Trust Networks, jointly developed with the OpenID Foundation as part of our joint Open Digital Trust initiative. The principles are publicly available through the IRF's website. Digital trust networks are networks of participants, including verification service providers who provide attestations to relying parties to underwrite the ID and in many cases the credentials of end users of the network, such as individuals and corporations, attributes such as the user's identity, but also their age, residency, education, attainment and credit score can also be underwritten as verifiable credentials within a single digital trust network. Verification providers could be banks who, after all, know customers very well and are trusted by them to hold their data securely. They could be telcos, utilities, universities, hospitals, possibly even governments, uh, including tax authorities. Um, The list is open and the idea with this is very much for an open data economy in line with our work on open banking. The promise is of delivering financial and other services much more quickly and securely and with the higher levels of trust and lower levels of fraud. Today, I'll be talking to a couple of the key participants in the working group that developed these principles who are leaders in this field. Greg Wolfond is chairman and CEO of Secure Key Technologies in Toronto, a firm that specializes in developing digital ID and trust solutions in the Canadian and US markets, also active in Australia and the UK. He was a lead contributor to the interoperability working group of the project. Angus McFadden is a technology lawyer and a partner with leading London law firm, Pinsent Masons. He's worked with OIX, the Open Identity Exchange, among other clients on digital ID projects and FinTech projects. He led the liability and legal framework working group of the project. Uh, Greg, turning to you first, we last spoke to you during episode 87 of FRT almost a year ago, and uh, really just wondering uh, what are the key developments in the digital ID space that you observe that you'd like to call out in that intervening period? A, a lot is the same. I'm still sitting in, at my home in front of a computer screen <laughs> uh, to get most of my meetings done. But in the digital ID space, it's been moving quite a bit. In, in Canada, we licensed the technology stack that we have to interact. So it will be called Interact ID in Canada. And we've seen a lot of move a- along the lines that we have, that it's, it's really the consumer's data and their right to consent to share, that it's going to have to bring in a combination of federated models and self-sovereign models. And how do you bring in a, an attribute from a government that says, I'm me and here's my driver's license, but also this is my bank and it says it's me and here's Equifax and here's my credit score and put all that in a user's hands. So a ton of work on how do you bring all this together to get the ecosystem really uh, to become vibrant. So turning to the principles themselves, which you've helped uh, develop with the working group. As I mentioned, the broad pictures for digital trust networks to comprise a set of participants, essentially an ecosystem, including end users, verification service providers, and relying parties. There's also scope for other types of intermediaries to be defined by the network rules. Some of the key technical principles here are that they're envisaged to be capable of 100% digital operation with accessibility features when needed 
based on open standards, inclusive by design, interoperable with other regional and local networks and across sectors, resilient and probative, extensible, while having strong data integrity control. So quite a, a long list of technical desiderata for our networks. Um, the principles provide guidance and are, and are intended to be useful to practitioners. Um, zeroing in on privacy, there's a chapter on privacy and the, the principles are predicated on the idea of user centricity, meaning that unless there is supervening legal authority, data is shared only with the data subject's consent. Consent should be given and obtained on an informed basis and with appropriate protections, fully respecting applicable laws, of course. Other principles in this area include data minimization, i.e. the idea that the technical aspects of the network minimize the exchange and retention of information and data consistently with the use cases and with the desirability of reducing the vulnerability to cyber attack at the network. Another principle is portability, the idea that users should have the right to remove their credentials from one verification service provider to another. The networks envisaged to be highly secure and to embody anti-fraud by design, while also being auditable and compatible with both official and unofficial identities. So, Greg, um, wrapping all that up, how hard is it to build a trust network that embodies privacy by design, is consent-driven, and respects the complexities around consent and consent management, while being still usable by ordinary people? It's it's about as hard as it was to say all the <laughs> conditions <laughs> that, you, that you that you just listed. Yeah, it, it's difficult, right? Like we've seen the recent news in the states where you know parties were gathering all this and storing it and storing your face and comparing against other faces and 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 the pushback against that. The, the notion that we have that this is the consumer is in control, that it's multi-factor and multi-source. You can share your data from a bank. You can share your data from your verifiable credential driver's license you can share from a credit agency like Equifax or from your telco, and you do it all with consent and then not storing it in the middle and only sharing the minimum. Our, our belief is on this data minimization that you should be able to have different attributes of different parties. You should be able to share them with your consent, but not create this huge honeypot in the middle. And you should provide the minimum of data. A, a bar should know I'm over 21 and a, a bank who's doing KYC can know yeah, TD Bank says this is Greg, and this is he's matched the face on his driver's license, and he has Greg's phone, and, and these kinds of things. And the user should be empowered with that kind of consent. And this this learning we have as we go along is this, it, it's going to be a hybrid. Like in, in the end, how this is going to work globally, I think Lawrence, it's going to be a combination of open ID things and 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 federated models and distributed and self sovereign kind of models, and bringing those things together to make them interoperable. That's good, that gets really exciting. Like the, the work we're doing in Canada has federated models and verifiable credential models. The work in Australia for FPOS is all open ID and being able to have a, in, in that case, a trusted broker that can map all the different variations into something that actually works and gets uh, IDPs and relying parties up and running quite quickly. So connectedly, um, is it possible for a network, I mean, our principles suggest that it should be both auditable and uh, privacy enhanced by design or private by design. I mean, where are the trade-offs there and what are the key solutions being proposed? It's hard to do, right? Like we, we don't want, a consumer in Canada doesn't want their bank knowing that they go to this health provider or not. So we have to be able to, to blind it that way. But yet the consumer wants to see all the places they've shared and run their data. And if something goes wrong, uh, they want to call someone and like their bank and say, hey, can you fix this? <laughs> so, so, something's gone wrong here. I need to be able to fix it. So 
building all of that in and managing those kinds of use cases is the complexity on how do you do that well and enable those kinds of use cases. And I guess lastly, around this idea of consent, um, the idea of a consent dashboard that, that um, you know, we're all used to LinkedIn and, and Facebook sort of privacy settings and sometimes uh, used to them being reset by the operator without our, our knowledge. I mean, is this one of the challenges to design something that's powerful and yet user-friendly and, and where are the trade-offs there? Yeah, it's all going to be on usability for the end consumer, but the, but at the end of the day, we have the technologies, right? The, these things exist, o OpenID exists, and uh, the new verifiable credentials are coming. And we're, we're going to end up in a world where the user does have power, can control where they consent to share their data, can share the minimum, and can do this cross borders. Because we're, we're figuring out how do, how do you bring it across if it happens to be DigiID in one country, and it happens to be Verified Me in uh, another country, and it happens to be ConnectID in Australia. The, the trick is going to be making all these things interoperate well and adding other flavors of things. Like we're still, you know, in that world of fraud, the fraudsters are still out there trying to take over identities for their financial benefit. I think in the last year, what was it? $2 billion of crypto tokens were stolen. Like why rob a bank when I can do this online, to take over things and get there. So um, I think there's a good opportunity to bring these things together and empower users to control it. Well, on, on the question of fraud, the last time you were on our podcast, you mentioned that the bad guys or the bad actors are using AI. Uh, obviously, synthetic identities is, is a big sort of growing area of, of uh, fraud. And this is combining real attributes with kind of made up attributes. We have a world of GANs, gener generative and adversarial networks, um, spy versus spy, where each AI is trying to outfox the other. What, what are some of the latest techniques that FIs and others are using to combat this type of fraud? And how can digital ID networks guard against being penetrated by bad actors? It's just enabling, uh, we think, the broadest set of attributes, right? If I'm, if I'm opening a bank account at uh, Royal Bank of Canada and they want to know who I am, if I can share, hey, this is Greg and I logged into TD right now. Here's my email, my phone number. This account was created a long time ago but it's a high value transaction. I can also share, I've validated my driver's license with Ontario so I can share my driver's license details that have been validated, including a liveness test against the face and, and the system. If it's high value, I can prove I have my phone, the SIM is in the phone, the, SIM, the device didn't change. Depending on the use case that the relying party has, they should be able to request more attributes of you. And if you consent, you should be able to share that without creating that honeypot in the middle. And then you've got an audit of where, where you shared your stuff that the provider doesn't necessarily get to know where you've used it or where you've gone. If I share my driver's license, that's a verifiable credential from Ontario. Certainly Ontario doesn't get to know I went to this many bars or other places. So all these principles, like I love the IAF principles and what you've been able to put down because that's kind of what we strive to do. It's not easy and it's not going to be one solution fits all. You're going to have really smart people in different countries having schemes that we're going to figure out how to make interoperate really well so that a consumer can be empowered to not just in their country, but also cross border to get things done. Thanks, Greg. And uh, turning to you now, Angus, and I will ask you a couple of questions about the governance and legal principles. But before we do that, um, is, are there any topics that we've covered with Greg that you wanted to chip in on or um, offer observations around? I just want one thought, and that's really about fraud that, that's hitting the financial industry and particularly the banks say in the uk 
you know, we, we've got pretty extraordinary levels of fraud and that's really taken off since since COVID. There's been much more remote uh, activity with you know, financial transactions being conducted much more remotely. And this isn't all about identity fraud. You know, sometimes it's about social engineering, it's about getting people to pay money to people who they believe it's a reliable source, but but it isn't. That's running at an extraordinary rate. It's I haven't got the official figures, but it's something upwards of ten million pounds a day now being leaked out across the the UK banks. And we've got to act on this. There are different ways of acting on it, but digital identity trusted reliable digital identity can be a really effective tool as part of that. Okay, great. Um, so turning to the kind of legal framework and liability principles that you, you um, were key in hammering out, Angus, um, the principles set out that to enable adoption and use of any digital trust network, the rules and consequences of participation must be clear and supportive of the intended use, as you'd expect. Uh, the principles set out the key components that need to be combined to achieve the outcome. For example, the principles say that uh, within a network and across networks, contracts among network participants should be standardised as much as possible to ensure trust and transparency and reduce the cost and complexity of use. Um, the principles also state uh, under rules governed uh, that the network should set out rules to govern the allocation of covered liability as defined between categories of network participants, and we call these the liability rules. The rules should also govern the terms on which other networks that wish to federate or interconnect may do so, and onboarding arrangements and participation criteria. Um, so how important in your mind is it to get the liability piece right for trust networks, and what are the main issues to try to get right here? So understanding liability, or put simply, the consequences of your and, and others' actions, defective actions as well, is really key to understanding what participating in a digital trust network means. The obligations that you and others are under, the standards that everyone is held to, and the consequences, those are the things which together build trust. I, I spend my days helping others understand what, what this means for them, how liability very quickly translates into genuine business issues. And I think it's really important that, that, that business teams engage on it and don't just leave it as a, an issue for lawyers because it, it really impacts both the, you know, the business case, the value that can be gained from the use of, of digital identities participating in, in trust networks, as well as some of the slightly different risks that come with it. Now, for, for some trust networks, which have higher risk activity, you know, financial transactions or giving access to highly secure environments, you can really see that, you know, the, the, the context in which that's it. Yeah, and the principles set out a kind of, not, not exactly a charter, but some suggested principles that liability rules should take account of, and also a sort of three-layer layer cake, as it were, of different types of uh, liability models that different use cases um, could implement and also potentially mapped to different levels of liability. So there's a fair bit of guidance there without trying to be prescriptive. Is there anything in that sort of layer cake that you would pick out or, or, or want to illustrate, perhaps by reference to uh, your work with um, some of your clients? So when we started looking at the issue and debating it within the group over many, many hours, it, it became clear that there was no single solution to liability 
that was that wasn't a surprise to me, I suppose, from having tried to find one before. Um, but for others who are slightly newer to the topic you know, and came with preconceived ideas, I think it was a really interesting journey. And you know, what what becomes very clear is that what's right in one country or for one system or for one use case isn't the right model for another one, and it doesn't fit the economic model uh, for another one, or it doesn't fit the regulatory environment. So, so what is the right answer from a liability perspective really needs to be thought about contextually, and, and that includes factors such as you know, what liability is imposed by by the law in the the country that you're operating in, be that general or sectoral laws. To what to what extent is it possible to to vary or supplement uh, legally imposed obligations, you know, and using contracts to do that. So that was a really key part of, of the principles that, that contracts can both plug gaps in existing legal frameworks, but also enable you to tailor the trust the trust framework to suit a particular need. And and then you've got to look at who's involved and how's it being used. So so the liability solution will vary materially when you're dealing with a network of a few large corporates or between government organizations versus networks which are connecting thousands or millions of individuals. It needs to be thought about contextually. And what we've done is not to define a solution, but what we have done is put a framework together and looked at that against a number of viable liability models. And those viable liability models start from a baseline position of imposing zero additional liability beyond that required by law. And I think that's a really very much the opposite end of the spectrum as to where many people start this conversation about liability. They often start on basis of, if anything goes wrong, I want to be able to point a finger and get compensation fully from someone. But, but I, I think it's right to start from the opposite end and think about, okay, what does the law impose? what beyond that is actually required and justified for this network you know that that can be a step up into fault-based liability where the commercials the the economic model support it and it could also be a step further into what we've referred to as strict liability which which ignores fault and purely is based upon okay this transaction or this identity is proven to be incorrect we're not going to look at who who caused it to be incorrect, but there is a financial consequence as a result of that. It's 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 interesting if I if I can add to that, Lawrence. That's exactly kind of where we ended in Canada. That it was easier to say, look, these parties are going to provide whether it's Equifax providing or a government providing or a bank providing the data. They're going to do so to the best of their ability, but there isn't huge liability. We we, we know we could do the liability part and pay the liability side, but then. The charge, because you're basically giving insurance to the requesting party, goes up. So it depends if you're trying to solve how do how do you make this affordable and really easy to use, or am I okay to pay more and have the insurance on top? Because these things are often weighted, right? If I'm claiming this is so and so, and I got to deal with liability and claims that I'm going to need more revenue coming in or some kind of insurance premium to cover that gap, and it depends what is happening in the geography where that ends up. Angus. You're involved with a project called OIX, the Open Identity Exchange, as an advisor. Um, the OIX is a non-profit that's also a fellow traveller of the IIF in the search for interoperable trust principles and interoperable digital trust. 
Um, could you talk a little bit about that project and, and what the various roles work are or, or illustrate perhaps how OIX does illustrate one or two of the principles? So I, I can't speak on behalf of OIX, but I can share my enthusiasm for the work undertaken by OIX and that's, that's led by Nick Mothershaw there. And they've been on a real journey helping members of the industry understand digital identity from a policy and principles perspective. And at the start of February, they released what, what's called their Guide to Trust Frameworks for Digital Identity. And that takes a different perspective on trust frameworks from what we've done through the IIF. It, it's, it's more around how do you build a trust framework? What are the different components? How do they all join up? How do you make sure you've not got a blind spot when you're putting together a trust framework that sits around a network? And just linking that back to you know what, what we were discussing on liability, it's making sure that if you are in a potentially a low liability network, you know, what other things can you look at to ensure that trust is there? So you know, admission rules, for example, who's let, who's let in, who's able to participate, that becomes increasingly important where the you know, the liability that the money isn't there to to back up trust so it helps to shine a light on components like that how they need to be built up who would typically input on different areas uh, and you know, one of the really interesting and useful things is is trying to make sure that people are talking about the same thing you know i've been in many conversations where people have been arguing till they're blue in the face about what they've subsequently realized they're totally unconnected at different points because they've mixed up terminology terminology around things like what is a federated what is a decentralized now what is a centralized network that can mean different things to different people and uh, it's starting to coalesce around consistent terminology consistent ways of constructing trust frameworks that that's really good work that their mx has done okay great um turning back to you Gregor. So, so we've got these principles that say that a network should be economically sustainable, which is very easy to sort of lay down in, in a principle, but I guess a lot harder in practice. Uh, you mentioned on an earlier podcast that, um, you know, this is at least not a big revenue sort of item for banks providing identity as a service. I mean, how are some of your clients or projects dealing with this issue of e economics and the business model? Yeah, we're we spend a lot of time trying to help the banks. Like they want they want to be relevant to their customers. They want to help them get things done, and they're for the most part trusted, right? So when you log into CRA, tax authority, or other places, most Canadians use their bank. You know, hundreds of millions of transactions a year to log in there, as opposed to creating another uppercase, lowercase number, letter, password kind of thing. And our belief is you're going to have different uh, approaches here. But if you can help the bank help its customers. Uh, I'll help you when you're getting a loan. I'll help you when you're applying for this government service. I'll help you when you're getting things done. There's a real opportunity for banks to be their customer's friend. I'll keep your data private and I'll help you when you share this. We're really getting a good response to the model that we have here that says, hey, there's other attributes you want to bring in. The bank doesn't want to bring them in and be liable for all of those things. But if you could help the customer just store them, share them, enable the, the sharing using things that they do already today. They, you know, we log into our bank so many times. You really put the bank in a really good place because it's, it's all in the end going to be about an orchestrating a flow. If we're going to keep fraud away, 
a requester is going to want more and more things. Uh, I want to reset your password. Can I turn on the camera and check it's the face you use when you sync your passport? Can I check if your SIM is changed? Like it really depends on what transaction you're doing. The example Angus gave before of you know someone shows up and says sends me an email and says, "Hey Greg, we're going to the ball game. Send me a hundred pounds for this thing." It's coming from that person's name at Hotmail or at Yahoo or wherever. I, I don't know their email. So they're able to today, and this happens in Canada, show up at a smaller bank, have a fake driver's license, get an account, create a Hotmail account, add the photo from Facebook and become that person in a heartbeat. And then when they request funds, I have no clue if that's really them or not. So some of the services that are starting to get launched are, how would I verify that that person is really who they say they are before I send money? across. And these aren't hard to do, like using some of the services we have today. We just have to think about how would you solve that problem well. And it's not going to be by showing a piece of plastic that says I'm Angus, because that's just trivial to forge now. And, and the forgery of those things is becoming more and more common as they become more used for things like setting up crypto accounts and gambling accounts and everything else. There's just the fraudsters have figured out how to do this pretty darn well. Yeah, and no, while you were speaking, it occurs to me, obviously, uh, you'd get a, a hell of a lot of power as a fraudster to become a node in, in our digital trust network. So we need to have very powerful screening techniques. Now, are there digital trust networks? I guess the SSI model is a decentralized model. Does, does that mean that who gets to be a node is subject to consensus or can anyone become a node? And how do you keep the bad actors out of these digital trust networks as participants? There's the ultimate, uh, everything is free and everyone can participate and go there. And then, uh, Lawrence, there's my mother who <laughs> will consent to share things if she thinks it's the right thing. Like she gets an email that says, hey, we have your credit card. It begins with 4500. And so she answers all the questions. Well, we all know credit cards, they begin, the institution is the first few digits. So, <laughs> But they get her. Um, the, the same thing is going to be true here. So like we, we think the networks that will be most successful are the ones that have governance rules that allow different parties to participate and different parties can request certain things. A health provider can request my health card, a health number, uh, a bar can request my age, um, but they shouldn't get my whole driver's license and my details and, and all the rest. And so, yes, there are advocates that say, hey, the user should know this and they should consent to what they share and it's all done. But we're, we're finding that, hey, if we can help simplify that and keep it safe and give the user you know, their bank, a, a safe place to call to recover and manage. It's actually a more trusted world. And so we're figuring out how to bring some of these concepts together. But it's it's a palette, like as Angus says, there's, there's so many different things happening in different countries and smart people working on it. It's going to be how do you bring some of these great technologies together to empower that user in the middle to share their data. And it's uh, we're still, you know, as much as we've been at this for many, many years, we're still in the second inning or the third inning. It's still, it's still happening. It's, it seems to be happening much faster now. It's an exciting time of the game, but we're still in the early innings of getting this right. You're, you're, you're obviously talking baseball, not cricket. Um, <laughs> Angus, um, talking cricket, I mean, are you seeing, are you seeing progress in the UK and, and, and the EU around these issues? Are you starting to see consensus building up around the EID and other, other um passports there there's definitely progress both on the the regulatory side and on the uh, within the finance industry so something like open banking which has been pushed on many in the industry through through regulation forced them to invest heavily on making secure you know, apis that are enabled to 
to communicate yeah, at a very high level of transactions with lots of different people who want to connect in uh, securely. That's been done and now people are realizing that actually digital identity is an opportunity that they can grasp to to try and make some money back on that because often financial institutions have had to pay their own way on building that infrastructure uh, to meet regulatory requirements. So there's, there's opportunities there and certainly some are further ahead than others in grasping it, but it is a real opportunity there for, for banks to start to monetize some of those connections. And that, that doesn't mean they need to build the networks themselves, but there are networks that are starting to establish themselves and connect in and, and offer payment, you know, through premium API access. Uh, so that, that's an interesting development. Across UK government, there are developments in the government's own use of digital identity. So looking to evolve its own identity system, improving access for citizens to government. And that, that's a really interesting thing where actually identity, digital identity is being used for inclusivity purposes, making sure that you bring hybrid models, not just totally online where you've got people who've got strong issued credentials, a passport, a driving license, but those who don't, and, and making sure that digital identity works in that context for everyone, uh, particularly as we're moving into many more kind of remote interactions uh, when people are accessing services. And then at a broader European level, there are regulatory developments where, where digital identity is being pushed at much more a pan-EU level, you know, forcing member states to really get on board with this and, and have effective digital identity solutions in their countries. That, that's a really exciting space to watch. Some are much further ahead than others, but, but yeah, I would say not very many are very far ahead. So there's a big push to evolve in that space to make the single market in Europe much more effective, both online and offline. I mean, on that topic of, I guess, open banking and where open banking and, and open data intersect with digital ID, uh, Greg, in an earlier podcast, you mentioned this ability to share your tax return with a bank. I think um, that was an example. Uh, I don't know if it was hypothetical, but there's a treasure trove of data held by governments, which governments um, are not really equipped to share with FIs or others that would actually make getting a mortgage, getting a loan, getting an income-linked contingent repayment loan or whatever much, much easier. Are you seeing moves either at Canada or in these other places you're active for governments to be able to share data back to, with consent, of course, of the, the uh, subject, back to FIs or other reliant parties? Yeah, I like our, at the end of the day, our, our learning in Canada and we like the verified me stuff has just taken off. There's millions of users and more people signing up. Anyone from checking their membership at Costco to validating who they are for insurance or trying to get monies directly deposited by their insurance company to the payments use cases to health, the Ontario trusted account. We're doing like it's, it's all of these different use cases and different ones. Lawrence need different data. If I'm trying to underwrite a mortgage, I want to ask you what your income is. You may say your income is X or income is Y, or I could look at your bank account using open banking and see that $5,000 a month is deposited. But if you were a tricky kind of person, I'll say, you, you could put $5,000 a month into your account on a regular basis and say this was income. If I check with the tax authority, no one overpays their taxes. So I can check with the tax authority, what's Greg's real income over the last year or two years, or I'm a bank, uh, how much room is left in a retirement product? 
that's the stuff we're, we're busy adding. And, you know, Interact is working aggressively with us. We're, we're still running all the infrastructure and doing this with them, but they, they believe as we do that this is all going to be these models of the consumers empowered. We're not creating a honeypot of data and the user should be able to share all of this in a single transaction from multi-sources where it's encrypted at the source, delivered to the requesting party, and we don't see it or manipulate it or change it or anything else at the end. But the more data you've got, the more robust things you can do. A landlord is another example, right? The, the landlord cares I'm Greg, but they care more to know what is my real income, uh, is my credit score over X, am I a fraudster when I'm renting an apartment, and then what account do I pull the funds from every month? So bring those things together, you create magical experiences. Angus, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say the property market and uh, property transactions have been a really interesting area for development over here. So absolutely, rental market, the ability for people to prove how much they can spend and prove how, who they are, can they afford it? That is a, that's kind of taken off really well, much more so than many other use cases that, that people thought were going to be successful from a digital identity and open banking perspective. The other really interesting bit is conveyancing so buying and selling houses it's a god awful process in the uk it's just terrible and uh digital identity is really seen as a an area of which or a solution that can enhance that process cut big swathes of time out of it you know it could easily take three months for a normal transaction to go through and digital identity both of the individuals involved as well as the you know, law firms, the conveyances who authorize and put through transactions can cut weeks out of that, which for all of us in the UK would be a great step forward. And that's the same everywhere in the world, right? These problems are similar in all jurisdictions that people are just trying to get things done. And these legacy processes are hard. And there's rightly a fair amount of diligence on getting that transaction done, checking your income, proving that you are you, proving you have authority to to bind and sign this. I mean, this is, it's pretty powerful when you can bring these together. So we're seeing similar on this side of the pond. So look, winding up, and thanks very much to both of you, both for your time today, but also for your incredible work with the IF and with your clients and others on digital ID. Perhaps I'll turn to you for some closing thoughts around, you know, wh where do you hope us to be, I guess, in, in perhaps two to five years? And uh, uh, what are the, you know, key barriers or challenges that remain. Perhaps uh, ask you first, Greg, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, IAF's done a tremendous job pulling this together with as many participants as you have to get it, get it done. It is an exciting time. We're seeing this movement to digital ID and these different models, whether they're federated, whether they're self-sovereign. And the real solution at the end of the day is empowering the consumer to have their data, to consent, to share their data. I'd say there's a huge role, like there's a window now for banks to play a big role in this and hook it into payments and hook it into other kind of capabilities. And we're just excited to keep building this out because it's, it's going to keep evolving and there's not going to be one answer. It's going to be different things in different countries that have to be, as Angus says, interoperable to really work well. Angus, closing thoughts from you? I think stop letting liability be the thing that scares you off. There's so many positives from a you know, business case perspective, getting in, adopting digital solutions, digital identity in terms of cutting fraud, you know, cutting out time, cutting inefficiencies. And 
too many times have I seen organizations scared by the relatively small additional risk or different risks that come with, with digital trust networks and blinkering themselves as to those all those positives that that needs to be balanced against. So I do hope that people can start to think about liability in a much more nuanced and contextual way, which, which weighs it up against the positives that, that really are there to be seized. Right. Well, thanks again, both of you. And thanks to the listeners for your attention. Just a quick reminder, in case you haven't caught up, of a couple of our recent FRT podcasts of interest. In FRT episode 114, Digitising Finance for Women's Empowerment, we heard from uh, Andy Woolnock, uh, Executive Vice President of Global Advocacy, and Sonia Kelly, Director of Research and Advocacy from Women's World Banking discussing digital solutions for financial inclusion and innovation. And in the previous episode, 113, we started off the new year with our new Managing Director for Digital Finance, Jessica Renier, who's come in to replace Brad Carr, who's headed back to Australia and rejoined uh, the National Australia Bank. Jessica shares her views on developments in digital finance, on how she came to focus on this work, and discusses some of the key issues that will drive debate in 2022. Once again, thanks very much to Greg Wolfond and uh, Angus McFadden, and from me, Lawrence White, thanks for your attention.